There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the three possible murders of Vincent Patrick Carey, a delightful, elegant bachelor brutally tortured in his Bayswater flat. But whose story was true? And why was he killed? Was it a robbery, a homophobic attack, or a sex game gone wrong? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 88, The Three Possible Murders of Vincent Patrick Carey. Today, I'm standing on Craven Terrace in Bayswater, W2, three streets south of the bizarre suicide pact between Barbara Shuttleworth and Felix Sturber. A short walk from the Champion pub, where Dennis Nielsen met the lover whose rejection led to a spate of serial killings. Three streets west of the unsolved murder of Emmy Werner. And four streets east of the infamous sad-faced killer. Coming soon to Murdermar. Whereas North Bayswater is a bit of a dog's dinner, South Bayswater has been through so many phases, whether as resplendent residences for the Regency elite, arty squats for bohemian bums, or derelict slums for deadbeats, drunks and doldossers. It's so desperate to be posh, like it was in its heyday, that half of the houses are now owned by tax exiles, flannel dodgers, celebrity pedos, investment wankers, oil bastards, and the odd giddy granny who moved into her shabby council flat in the 1960s and is now neighbour to a Saudi prince. With 50 wives, five Ferraris, three Lambos, a gold toilet, a ruby anus, a questionable human rights record, an unquestionably small penis and an unpronounceable name. On Craven Terrace, amongst the Regency townhouses is an ugly little block of flats called Carroll House. It's not pretty, posh or stylish. In fact, 
It resembles 50 shoeboxes bolted together by a bored child. And although it looks too new to have a history, what happened here was dark, nasty and perplexing. As it was here, on Saturday the 28th of November 1964, the Vincent Patrick Carey met his three possible deaths. And although the culprits were all convicted, the question we have to ask is, which murder was real? Vincent Patrick Carey was gay. That may seem unimportant, and even an irrelevant detail to us, but the secret of his sexuality would define both his life and his death. Vincent, known as Vic, was born in the spring of 1914 in Ennis a small market town on the west coast of Ireland. Home to roughly 60 families, although this tiny community consisted of traditional skills, it had nothing modern, but it did have five churches. As life here revolved around three things, going to mass, knowing your priest, and saying your prayers. With Vic's father dying shortly after the birth of his youngest sister, being the eldest of three and devoted to his widowed mother, even as a young man, Vic had the maturity to take on the role of a father figure. Being tall and gangly, whereas many boys blossomed from scrawny brats into big tough lads who earned a crust in manly jobs such as farmers, miners and soldiers. Played by chronic asthma, Vic was diligent but far too delicate for manual work. And yet, this weakness would serve him well as a skill. Educated at Enestimon National School under a curriculum of maths, English and religion, with two conflicting views drummed into his brain that as a Christian, he must be kind, decent and tolerant of others. And yet, all homosexuals were an abomination to God. Whether Vic knew that he was gay early on is impossible to know. But he definitely knew that he was different and felt he had to hide it. Leaving school age 14, the best education Vic got was from his mother, a solid, hard-working widow who single-handedly raised a good family and built a flourishing business, having ran the Glenbourne Hotel for two decades, eight miles north in the spa town of Listoon Varna. Always happy and singing, Vic loved working alongside his mother. Admittedly, some duties he was too delicate to do, but being impeccably neat, he excelled as the hotel's cleaner. So without fail, every day, the towels were folded, the sheets were crisp, the room was aired, and not a single speck of dust was seen. In 1941, age 26, being declared unfit to fight for his country, owing to his asthma, his pacifist beliefs, and his homosexuality, Vic worked as a cook for the Ministry of Air Production in Dublin, as a frail man, he felt different. As a Christian, he felt ostracized. As a gay man, he felt unwelcome. And now, as a supposed traitor, as pleasant as he was, 
he knew that Ireland was no longer the place for him. Following his beloved mother's funeral, the hotel's collapse, and having turned his back on a religion which treated him more like a leper, whose sexual disease, they said, needed to be cured. Having reopened the Glenbourne Hotel with his brother, in 1949, Vic moved to London and never returned. 23 years later, Vincent Patrick Carey was well cemented in London life. He had a good job, a stylish flat, a busy social life, and a semi-regular boyfriend. And yet, for one of three tragic but equally plausible reasons, he would end up dead. Nineteen sixty-four, like most years before, had been a good year. For the last thirteen years, fifty-one-year-old Vic had worked as a canteen supervisor for the Metropolitan Police. His obsession with cleanliness had earned him a career, as being a meticulous man in a pristine white suit, hairnet, and gloves. He enforced the highest standards in the force's canteens across the city. Vic was a real character, a slim six-footer who stood out as a harmless eccentric. Blessed with youthful skin, dark parted hair, and thick arched eyebrows, although his Irish accent was now little more than a lilt, he still looked like the cheeky little boy from County Clare. Dressed like a dandy, he always looked immaculate in sharp suits, starched shirts, bright cravats, and fine hats. But this posed several problems for Vic. Looking wealthy when he wasn't, it made him a target for thieves. Being gay, which he was, with homosexuality still illegal, he risked losing more than just his job, having been attacked several times before. And as an older gentleman with a penchant for rough little rogues, although he was painfully lonely, he could also be his own worst enemy. Vic saw himself as a sophisticated upper-class gent. The problem was that being attracted to a bit of rough, with calloused hands, coarse tongues, and sweaty bodies, Vic took pleasure in turning a lout into a lush. Before any sex ever took place, Vic always insisted that his date bathed, dressed in one of Vic's own fresh shirts, and enjoyed an exquisite meal over a few fine glasses of Beaujolais. Unsurprisingly, as a frail man left alone with a burly stranger in his own posh flat, having been robbed several times before, although Vic took precautions, it didn't dampen his sexual desires. And that is how he met his killer. Seeking a nicer neighbourhood to live, on Saturday the 14th of November 1964, Vic moved from Kennington to Flat 58 at Carroll House in Bayswater, W2. A modern six-storey apartment block with a lift, good locks and a street door only accessed via intercom. It was perfect for a single man who liked to entertain. It had a full-fitted kitchen, a bathroom and a sitting room with his bed to one side 
and a sofa for his guests. On the 16th, Ken and Vic decorated. On the 17th, they let the paint dry. And with his furniture being delivered on the 19th, Vic organised for the carpets to be fitted on the 18th. But someone cocked up. At 10am, on Thursday the 19th of November 1964, one day late, a van was dispatched from the Peyton Steam Carpet Cleaning Company on Latimer Road, W12. In the back of the van was a dry-clean carpet, and the driver's name was John Simpson, also known as Jock. With his furniture in, the paint dry, and no carpets down, Vic should have been furious. But he wasn't. Jock was a 28-year-old Glaswegian, with fair hair, blue eyes and rough hands, who, having served almost three years in prison for theft and burglary, had struggled to find work. So six weeks earlier, he had turned his hand to driving a van. And although he lived apart from his wife and kids, he was exactly Vic's type. For almost an hour, the two men chatted over a coffee in Vic's small but lavishly decorated pad. And although, always looking for a quick quid to be made on the side, Jock offered to lay his carpet for a pound. The next day, Vic laid it himself, as he regaled Kenneth about the handsome young man he had met. A few days later, Jock was sacked. One week later, Vic was dead. On Saturday the 28th of November 1964, in his bedsit at 113 Cunningham Road in Shepherd's Bush, Jock and his two pals, 23-year-old William Dunning, known as Willie, a married labourer with one conviction for burglary, and 20-year-old Michael Odam, known as Lane, with four convictions for theft, assault and drunkenness, all three formulated a plan. They were broke. But after a few pints, the three lads left their flat at 4.30pm, and according to Jock, I know a queer we can get some money from. For Vic, it began as an ordinary day. He inspected the police kitchen at the Camden section house, arranged a stock check for Monday with William Hall, had a hearty lunch of Irish stew, potatoes and bread pudding, and at 2pm he left. By 5pm, in Bayswater, he purchased a bunch of flowers, a bottle of Beaujolais, a pack of cigarettes and a refill for his lighter. And with no plans except to relax after a long week, tonight he would unwind with a good wine, a long snooze and a classical concert on the radio. At 5.30pm, by the street door of Carroll House, the three lads rang the intercom for Vic's flat. The plan was simple. Jock goes in, flirts a bit, finds the wallet, tosses the wallet out of the window to Willie and Lane. Jock leaves, and Vic doesn't realise it's missing until the morning. But with Vic not in, they headed a few doors down to the Cybon Cafe at 15 Craven Terrace, where they ate egg and chips as served by the manager. At 6pm, with Vic back from shopping, 
Jock rang the intercom. He was buzzed through the street door. He ascended to the sixth floor in the lift and was let into flat 58 by Vic, as witnessed by a neighbour. Outside, under Vic's balcony, stood Willie and Lane, as witnessed by another. According to Jock, upon seeing the dry-clean carpet still rolled up in the hallway, he offered to lay it down that night for a pound. Vic agreed, but first they would have a drink. In the sitting room, the two men chatted, drank vermouth and listened to classical music, as William Lane waited outside in the cold. But the robbery was a washout, as Vic's wallet and checkbook was nowhere to be seen. Thirty minutes later, having been invited out for drinks by Vic, feeling a little too sweaty to be seen in a posh Bayswater pub, although Jock said that he would rather head home and scrub up first, he accepted Vic's offer to have a bath here. I can give you a clean shirt. At 7pm, they both left Carroll House and headed one street north to the White Hart pub at 31 Brooks Mews North where they saw and spoke to no one. At 10.30pm, they left the pub, returned to the flat. Jock cooked them both a meal of buttered chicken and a cheese sauce as they drank two glasses of Beaujolais. And at 11.30pm, Jock said goodbye to Vic, left Carroll House, caught a taxi back to Shepherd's Bush and went straight home to bed. And that was Jock's story. It's little more than a failed robbery, backed up by witnesses at the Cybon Cafe, the White Hart, Carroll House and fingerprints inside Vic's flat. But there are several problems with this story. Why did Jock not mention Willie or Lane after he enters Vic's flat? Why did Jock offer to lay the carpet when Vic had done it himself one week before. Why did Jock cook a meal of buttered chicken, when according to the autopsy, Vic's final meal was Irish stew? If this was a robbery, why didn't Jock steal anything else? Why would the police later find Vic's wallet hidden in the kitchen cupboard and his checkbook under the carpet, if he hadn't planned to invite anyone up to his flat that night? And if Vic did give Jock a crisp white shirt to wear, why was it later found by the bed heavily stained with Vic's blood? Jock could be entirely innocent. Only William Dunning, also known as Willie, told a very different story. At 4.30pm, in their shared ground floor flat in Shepherd's Bush, as Willie and Lane had subbed Jock one pound to pay the rent, Jock said, I've got a job to do for a friend. Maybe I'll let you have it later. What the job was is unclear, but at no point did anyone mention a robbery, a wallet, or a queer with cash. At 5.30pm, as corroborated by Jock's story, with Vic being out, the three men ate egg and chips at the Cybon Café, a few doors down, but not within sight of Carroll House. 
At 6pm, with a job to do, Vic said, You two wait here. I'll see if he's in. By 7pm, Jock hadn't returned. So having rang the intercom, but got no reply, as the light in Vic's flat was off, Willie and Lane headed to the White Hart pub. Inside, Lane said, Look, over there, Jock's talking to someone. That someone was Vic. Not wanting to disturb them, they signalled Jock to the loo, where he promised to get them the pound. But by 10.30pm, as Jock had left the pub, assuming he had gone back to Vic's flat, Willie and Lane waited in the cafe. At 11.30pm, the cafe shut. So with the door to Carol House being open, they rang the doorbell of flat 58. Oh, hello, Vic cooed, seeing two rugged men on his doorstep. Willie asked, Sorry to bother you. Can we talk to Jock? Vic said, I'm sorry, but he's gone. Just as Jock had stated. But please, come in, have a drink. So they did. Willie and Lane sat in the spotless sitting room, unsure how to sit, what to say, or where to put the glass of the red stuff, as Willie called it. I think it was wine or port or summer. With the boys side by side, on the sofa at the foot of the bed, Vic grinned in the armchair and topped up their glasses. After half an hour, with Lane nodding off, Willie asked, Do you mind if I use your loo? Vic didn't, so he left. He showed me to the loo and came in behind me. He made a lewd suggestion. I pushed him. He put his hand on my face and one on my privates. I'd been interfered with as a boy, so I've got a horror of queers. He went to kiss my mouth. I headbutted him. I don't remember much after that, except Lane shouting at me. Then we put the man in his bed, walked to Marble Arch, and I got a taxi home. After that, Jock came home, we all went out for a pint, and thought nothing more of it. And that was Willie's story. It's little more than a drunk heterosexual fighting off the sexual advances of a drunk homosexual. In fact, they didn't even know the vicar died until four days later when his death appeared in the newspaper. But there are several problems with this story. If Jock was going to lay the carpet, why didn't he take any tools with him? Realising Jock had left the flat, why did William Lane decide to go to the Whitehorse pub one street away when the mitre is immediately opposite Carroll House? Why did William Lane not want to disturb Jock and Vic in the pub if they didn't plan to rob him? What is the chance of the street door to Carroll House being left open? Why would Vic invite two strangers into his flat? If Jock wasn't in, why would William Lane go into a stranger's flat? And more importantly, where was Jock's bloodied shirt? As well as the towels, the bedsheets and the electrical flex. In court, all three could still be found innocent. But following their arrest, 
and believing that Jock had implicated them both in the murder, Willie and Lane came forth with another different story. At 4.30pm, all three left their Shepherd's Bush flat. The reason? Robbery. I know a queer with some cash. Jock had no issues flirting with Vic. I've known gays. I don't have a problem with them. At 5.30pm, with Vic not in, they ate egg and chips in the cafe. At 6pm, with Vic back, Jock went inside the flat. Willie and Lane waited outside, but no wallet was tossed out. At 7pm, having bathed and dressed in a fresh white shirt, Jock and Vic went to the White Hart pub, followed by Willie and Lane. In the toilet, as a change of plan, all three agreed to rob Vic inside his flat later that night. To raise no suspicions, Willie and Lane would wait inside the Mitre pub and gain entry to Carol House via the street door, which would be left open by Jock. The robbery would be unexpected and sudden. At 11.30pm, with Vic a little bit tipsy, William Lane rang the doorbell at flat 58. The second it opened, Lane threw a coat over Vic's head as a distraction. They kicked him, punched him, and bundled him onto the bathroom floor as all three rained down a volley of fists and feet onto the frail asthmatic. In a prolonged attack that the pathologist would describe as severe and horrifying violence. As the terrified man squealed in pain and lashed out in blind panic, needing to shut him up, they stuffed his bloodied mouth firmly with a small towel, tightly bound his legs and hands with an electrical flex that ripped out of the wall, and as they ransacked every room, searching for his money, the less he talked, the harder they beat him, unaware that, having spent his last penny on the flat, he was broke. They kicked him so hard, he broke five ribs. They punched him so fiercely, his false teeth shattered. And with his face a swollen mess, his body all bruised, and blood pouring from his eyes, nose and ears as his brain hemorrhaged. At some point, unable to breathe, Vic went limp. Removing his gag, he didn't scream. Untying the flex, he just slumped in a lifeless heap. And as they moved this bloody, barely breathing mess onto the bed and tried to revive him, it was too late, as Vic was dead. They wiped down the surfaces. They stole his watch, his lighter and a bottle of gin. Locked up the flat, threw the keys down the drain. And at Marble Arch, all three caught a taxi back to Shepherd's Bush. When Vic failed to show up for work, his colleague William Hall alerted the flat's caretaker. And four days later, Vic's body was discovered. Inside... The police found four sets of fingerprints, an electrical flex, and a bloodied shirt. Aided by several witnesses, 
who had helped construct a photo fit of the man the Vic was last seen with. Aided by extensive news coverage, a feature on the TV show Police 5, and invaluable cooperation between the police and the gay community, Jock, Willie and Lane were arrested, and each gave a series of confessions. All three men were tried at the Old Bailey on the 22nd of March 1965, and with a unanimous jury finding them guilty of murder, William Dunning, Michael Odam and John Simpson, also known as Willie, Lane and Jock, were sentenced to death. But with the death penalty soon to be abolished, after an appeal on the 12th of April 1965, during which their defence counsel had claimed that a key witness was unfit to stand trial, their executions were commuted to a life sentence, and all three served just 12 years. Vic was a good man. He was neat, kind and decent. He was highly respected in his job. He was adored by his friends. He was devoted to his mother. And having fled the bigotry of his homeland to be the man that he wanted to be, although lonely, but with lots of love to give, and a character who lived a good life, being drawn to the wrong type of boy, his life was cruelly cut short, and he died for the sake of a pound. But wait a minute. If there were three possible murders of Vincent Patrick Carey, which was the real one? Well, as mentioned before, there were several problems with each of these stories. And even though the last statement was used to convict all three men, something was missing. Whilst undergoing medical tests at Brixton Prison, Jock and Willie confessed to a fellow prisoner Andrew Watson Allen, their part in the murder. His statement was key to the prosecution's original case, but as this witness had been sectioned under the Mental Health Act four times before, owing to a nervous disorder, even though his statement is clear and lucid, it was rejected at appeal. It read, Jock told me that when Vic and he returned from the pub, where they had met William Lane, all four went back to the flat together. Jock and Vic had a drink, and then some gubbing took place. That is, sucking a penis with one's mouth. Jock said he had a lot to drink, and fell asleep on the sofa. He was awakened by a struggling and grunting noises. He saw Willie and Lane, they had hold of Vic, and he was stood beside them. His hands were behind his back, tied with a flex. Vic started to struggle, so Jock headbutted him to keep him quiet. But Vic wouldn't shut up, so they beat him and stuffed his mouth. Suddenly, he went all still, and Jock said, He's had it, Vic's dead. So they robbed him and fled. Exactly what happened that night is unclear. But if this statement isn't true, why did the police find that Vic's belt, zip and trousers were undone? Why did the pathologist confirm that Vic had suffered extensive bleeding, bruising, 
and a widening of the anal passage. And if this was just a robbery, why were Jock, Willie and Lane all sent to Brixton Prison Hospital to have swabs taken of their penises and anuses? Perhaps there really were four possible murders after all. Or maybe there was just one. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, after the gap, I shall be opening and closing my mouth repeatedly, where nonsense will come out and cake will go in. Yummy! So get your tea stewing now, because it's drivel time. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Gemma Fisher and Mona von Petersdorf. I thank you. Plus a huge thank you to anyone in the healthcare profession, emergency services and all other services doing a sterling job to keep our countries afloat during these turbulent times. Thank you everyone. You deserve medals, respect and to be paid much more than you are. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fucking hell. Christ, that was a... <coughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my Lord. Hello, everyone. God, dear, that was a nightmare. That was really difficult, that one. That was really difficult. Lots of voices, lots of... Oh, dear, it's going to be a bugger to edit as well. Oh, that's going to be a real stinger. Anyway, 
Hello everyone, how you all doing? Hope you're all well. I'm just going to open some windows. Oh, fresh air, thank God. Fresh air and uh, light streaming in and Coot's finally shut up. Coot was having a bit of a rant outside. Uh, and the swan was banging against the side of the boat going, where's me breakfast? Where's me breakfast? Uh, I'm just going to open the big... Right, everyone, as always, this is Extra Mile. blah 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 Extra Mile. Uh, unscripted, unedited, waffly bit. Uh, blah, blah, blah. People seem to enjoy it. I don't really know why. That's fine. Right, I'm going to go and make myself a tea because I was trying to drink my coffee during that record and then I realised I hadn't put sugar in it. It was really disgusting. Oh, uh, uh, God, just knack after that. Right, get a pop of tea on. Pop a tea on and have a cake. Oh. There we go, opening up the side doors. Pop the uh, water from the water bottle into the kettle. Oh, all exciting. All excitement. This is obviously weird if people are walking past the canal now. They'll be looking at, in at a man talking to himself. Explaining to himself how he's making a cup of tea by putting a bag in and some sugar because that was disgusting. Not having any sugar. Oh, I have two on that. Bit of milk and oh, Belgian bun. Belgian bun. Not the not the Belgian bun from uh, Wendell's. I think Wendell's have shut now because of the the virus thing. So I'm, I'm using Tesco's and Tesco's are all right, but they're not the best Belgian buns ever. Uh, right. Okay. Before, what should I do? Should I do questions first? No, I'll do waffle and then I'll do questions and then we'll do. We've got lots of information about this story to add in. This could be a long episode. Oh, uh, it's going to be a nightmare to edit, I swear. Uh, and then, uh, right, okay. Uh, all good. Hope everyone is well and good out there. Obviously, we're all in the middle of the coronavirus bullshit at the moment. It is what it is. There's nothing we can really do about it. Stay safe. Keep your hands clean. Keep the diff distance from people. Everyone, do you know what? We'll, we'll all get through this. But, and hopefully, uh, as I mentioned in my little video uh, the other day, hopefully we'll all come through this a little bit wiser and a little bit less selfish. Uh, do you know, sometimes we need tough lessons and this is nature given as a tough lesson, I think. Saying that, do you know what? We need to put things into perspective. We need to put aside the things that are kind of unimportant and realise there are things more important than kind of jobs and titles and shit like that. And, you know, family's important. People around us are important. Our health is important. Do you know, the little things in life are important. So hopefully this will be a, a good wake-up call for many of us. But unfortunately, uh, there'll be many people out there who just won't give a shit. Uh -huh. Me, what am I doing at the moment? It's... Uh, I, I've... Um, because of the, the, the virus, obviously, I, life for me has, hasn't changed much. I'm still sitting in the boat every day writing. And my research is done for a year, so I'm kind of ahead. I can keep the podcast going for a long time. Uh, so life has, really hasn't changed much for me. I go out once a day, do a little bit of a shop, come back, or, or just go on a little walk. Uh, but the good thing is, uh, because of the virus, uh, not that there's a good thing with the virus, um, it's, um, I don't have to move the boat anymore. They've the the river authority has said to to stop the virus spreading. 
uh, we don't have to move the boats every every two weeks, which is great. So I'm in a nice little place. As uh, Tesco's not too far from me. There's a big field in front of me. Uh, I'm kind of off the towpath, so I'm not being bothered too much. Even though this is quite good, the River Authority have put out signs. They I think they're going out today as we speak, saying to people, "Yes, you you're getting your exercise. That's good, but don't forget." people on the to people who live on the on the on the canal we're trying to self-isolate as well do you know we're we're keeping our distance from our, our fellow boaters as well but if people are walking past on the towpath do you know you're coming within our area do you know everyone else needs to stay two meters away but you seem to forget that when you come on the towpath do you know you're right next to our boats and we're trying to self-isolate so there's signs out now saying please avoid any areas where there's canal boats because we're trying to self-isolate as well uh so that's that's really good uh, currently got no no murder mile walks until the foreseeable future that's joe that is what it is uh having a bit of a jiggle now that's all uh, yeah uh, they, they will come back when they will come back who knows and and we'll do the the new podcasters only walk podcast listeners only walk oh my brain is so tired after all that um also, if you go to uh, in the show notes, I'll put in the show notes here. Uh, it's people. It's people seem to enjoy. Uh, as mentioned before, I put up all the all of the ringtones in the ebooks uh, on the Murder Mile website. They're all on there. Go to the eShop. The Murder Mile uh, ringtone, the is kind of selling. Really, it's not selling because it's free, but you can download it for free. So I'll put on a link on it on this website. On this, these, oh, so tired on these show notes. I'll put them there. Uh, and you could download it. Uh, I think it works on pretty much every phone. So, yep, treat yourself. Have some fun. Oh, dear. Right, how's me uh, kettle's almost done? Cake next to me. Oh, yummy. Can't wait to dive into that cake. Oh. Shall I? Shall I do the questions now? <sighs> My brain is just screwed. Got nothing left. I'm, pa I'm trying to do... They're trying to get so far ahead because I'm just kind of preempting the year ahead. So I'm kind of so when everyone's out there is sitting on their ass and going, oh well, it's nice sunny weather. I'm literally I'm working even harder than I normally would. So I'm doing I'm, I'm doing three episodes at the same time. I'm writing I'm writing one. I'm prepping the next one. So this is at 88. Uh, I'm already prepping 89. I've just finished 87 which is the first date killer one i've edited that this one i'm gonna start editing today and start writing the new one and i need to start prepping 90 as well oh i'm just trying to get myself a couple of weeks ahead because i've realized that um because i don't have the walks anymore and I, I can't go anywhere and i can't see anyone i can't do anything i've got loads of time so i'm literally just thinking if each week i can save an extra day because it takes a week to do the whole podcast now i've got a saving a day and i've got a laptop that lasts much longer than the old one fantastic i can say by the time this shit is all over i'll be a couple of weeks ahead and i'll probably take a mid a mid-year break but uh yeah powering on head why is this kettle taking so bloody long normal maybe i put in too much water i don't know i'm gonna put it in now it doesn't need to be too hot does it we don't need it to be boiling that will do it's hot. Give it, a, give it a stir. Give it a stew. Right, I'm gonna let it stew. I'll do the questions now. After the questions, I'll go and do that. Right, I'll go and get my tea up. Right. Whew. Question number one. Whew. Answers at the end. Uh, question number one. Uh, name the hotel that Vic's mum owned. 
obviously as mentioned before uh i might come in and edit out some of these questions so if i skip one if it goes one two three five that's because i've edited out that question because it didn't doesn't appear in the episode uh question number one name the hotel that vic's mum owned question number two name the two pubs in this story question number three where was vic born uh, you get a b- bonus point for even just attempting to pronounce this place. I had to literally go on uh, different places to find out how to pronounce it because it's a lot of bloody letters in there. Uh, question number four. Uh, what were the three drinks found in Vic's flat? Mm, difficult question. Slightly difficult, that one, because some I mentioned a lot and others uh, you would only have picked up at the end. But there were three different types of drink found in Vex flat burp uh question five where was wicks where was vick's wallet and checkbook hidden Whew. running out of air question number six where did jock william lane get a taxi following the murder question number seven what which prison hospital which prison hospital were jock and willie in question number eight what was Vic's final meal? Uh, there's three pieces to that meal. Uh, question number nine. What was the name of the cafe? Uh, and what was the food that the three lads ate? I mentioned that about 50, 500 times. Hopefully you still got that. Uh, question number 10. This is a really difficult one. What was the name of the dry cleaning company Jock worked for? Yeah, that was a hard one. Yeah, um, to be honest, I had difficulty pronouncing that one. Right, picking up my tea. Oh, dear. Oh, but it looks lovely outside today. I think it's going to be the last nice, bright day we're going to have for a little while. Because next week looks really glum and cloudy. Boo, boo. Um, uh, oh, I filled up my tea too heavy. Too heavy and too high. Uh, oh, it's spilling everywhere. Right. I'm going to pick up some beers later on because because we, can't, we can't go to the pub anymore. I'm going to have some e drinks with some friends. So uh, if any friends are listening to this, let me know. G- give me a buzz, and we'll do e drinks. We can do a uh, 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 Facebook Live, and we'll have some drinks in front of us, and we'll pretend like it's a pub. That will be good fun, rather than just sitting here and doing nothing. Right. <sighs> okay. So details about this story hope you enjoyed it that was an interesting one i thought um it was one of those stories where i'd heard about it somewhere else where someone had said uh it was a story about uh three men who beat up another man because one of them tried to kiss him and that's all i that's all i knew about it but i thought it's probably going to be boring but let's have a laugh let's have a look but when i actually went through the story uh through the the original case file it was it proved to be quite interesting because there's lots of c- conflicting information. So, <clears throat> this was an interesting case as well because one of the police files uh, was open. That was the one I used. It was quite thick and thorough. But there was another one, and I believe this was associ- the, the file that I was using was associated with the appeal, whereas the original one to do with the original case was closed. So, there's pieces of information that I couldn't get. Um, but in the file I did have, nothing was redacted. So that was kind of weird. So I don't know what's in the file that I can't get access to. But one of the things that was in the this original file 
was crime scene photos and there was none in there. I looked through the file and I was like, well, there's no crime scene photos in there at all. But when I looked in the back, they'd got the original negatives from the crime scene photos. And what I did was I photographed them and then I came home and I got on Photoshop and I, because they were in negative and I reproduced them as positives. So uh, there's, I'll be putting almost all of them onto the Patreon account. So if you're on Patreon, check those out. I might sprinkle a few on social media, but the bulk are going straight onto Patreon. <gasps> you lucky people. Right. Obviously, the end of this story, because it was a lot to pack in, I didn't put in a lot about the uh, about the finale, the kind of what happened after the murder. So I can do that now. Uh, so... Uh, as mentioned, uh, Vic's last day of work was the the Saturday, the twenty eighth. He was at Camden Police Section House. He had lunch. He said to William Hall, "Let's do a stock check check on Monday." Uh, Monday morning, uh, Vic didn't turn up. Uh, so uh, William Henry Hall, uh, that was his his colleague from Camden, uh, went to Vic's flat, knocked on the door, no reply. Uh, had a look outside, uh, the uh, blinds were closed, couldn't see in, uh, called his phone, no reply. Tuesday again, no reply. Wednesday again, looked through the letterbox, it was all dark, no reply. Got in touch with the caretaker and the caretaker was like, okay, well, I've got a key. Do you know, we're, we're slightly worried now because we always see Vic. Uh, they went in there, they saw Vic, they called the police, the police immediately turned up. So that was uh, Wednesday the 2nd of December 1964 at 1.20pm. DS Peel went into Vic's flat, found the body. Uh, and when they were searching, uh, they found the checkbook in Vic's name and £2 in £1 notes under the carpet in front of the ladder in the kitchen. Detail I didn't need to add in there, but I felt it was. Uh, Vic was lying on his on his back on the divan bed. He was partially dressed. His fly button to his trousers was undone and his belt was undone. His shirt and vest were pulled up, exposing his abdomen. And his, uh, around his right wrist was the white flex, the electrical uh, f- uh, cord. Uh, as mentioned, blood pouring from his mouth and his nostrils. The room was in disarray. His face was bloated. He was swollen. His, his dentures were uh, lying out of his mouth. And he had really, really substantial bruising. And uh, although he had a brain hemorrhage, they said he actually died of shock. Uh, I didn't mention this in the story because it, it didn't warrant time giving it to it. But uh, the day afterwards, Sunday the 29th of November, all three men took their clothes. They hid it in the left luggage kiosk at Victoria Station. Um, uh, police later found it and they said it was uh, their clothes were stained with Vic's blood. Uh, they had fibres from uh, Jock's pullover were on Vic's shirt as well. Um, so that was left there. Uh, and inside uh, one of their clothes as well was um, Lane's merchant seaman ID card as well, which really didn't help. Uh, various other things found there. Obviously, because um, Simpson had delivered the carpet there as well, they they had, obviously, I mentioned at the start that they had a job number, uh, the patent steam cleaning company. Oops, I've just given away the answer for later on. Pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> uh, uh uh, had a docket which said this carpet was delivered on this date to this by this person to this address. So they knew that uh, Jock had been there. Uh, and they later uh, managed to find Vic's lighter, his favourite one, the Flaminaire lighter, the gold one, his cufflinks uh, and the bottle of gin, which they'd taken. Um, all three men uh, uh, fled. Uh, now, 
Jock didn't really flee anywhere. He kind of just stayed around in London and kind of kept his head down. Uh, Lane, Michael Odam, fled to Aden. Uh, he was a, a merchant seaman, as mentioned. So the police had to work in conjunction with the High Commissioner of Aden. Uh, Michael William Odam, known as Lane, 20-year-old merchant seaman, um, was de- was detained on board an oil tanker called the British, Dem- the British Diplomat, uh, which was bound for Kuwait. Uh, the police arrived there in Kuwait on the 25th of December 1964. Merry Christmas. Uh, it was a boat owned by British Petroleum, BP. Uh, when they got there, they had they had the ship rerouted to Aden, and right and in Aden, Oda, in Aden, Odam <laughs> Lane was arrested. Uh, that's good work by the police there. You know, working with all the high commissioners and all that, they actually used the uh, the commissioner's private residence to get a full confession out of him. Um, because they didn't know anything about who uh, Vic was last seen with. Um, on the 6th of December 1964, the police had built up enough of a picture to feature the murder on the TV show Police 5, which uh, 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 TV celebrity Shaw Taylor, that was his show. You remember that from the 1970s and 80s? Keep them peeled. Um, they superimposed posed a picture. Uh, uh, hang on. Uh, yeah, no, they, they said that uh, Vic was seen in the presence of someone that they called the youth. They had a, the description was good. Uh, they put it in the papers and it was such a good d- picture. I haven't been able to find this picture, unfortunately, um, that even even Jock was like, shit, that is me. Uh, so uh, Wednesday, the 9th of December, 1964, 5.40 p.m. at 113 Cunningham Road, which was their shared flat. Uh, Jock was arrested by D.I. Crane and D.S. Peel, and he denied knowing anything about the murder. This is where this all starts. Uh, he was initially questioned. Uh, Dunning was arrested about a week later. He was cautioned. Uh, him and Laney had both Lane to come. Uh, they'd already got the statement off Lane by that point, because don't forget that they found his uh, ID card. Uh, this is where the story starts to, to deviate at that point. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, they managed to get witness statements off Peter Edelfield, who was the taxi driver who picked them up in Marble Arch. Good bit of work by the police there, considering the amount of taxis that are around there. They were able to track down the exact poli- uh, taxi driver and find out what time he picked them up, where he picked them up from, and where he took them to. Uh, over 500 people were witnessed. My throat is going now. 500 plus people witnessed. 200 plus wit- uh, witness statements. 51 exhibits. Police worked extensively with the, with the gay community, uh, uh, which uh, actually they they often flag up this case as kind of quite an important one for the kind of communication between the police and the gay community. Because without the gay community, really, they wouldn't have been able to pull together such a, a picture of. Uh, Vic's life because he was he was such a private person uh fingerprints were found in the flat uh, <coughs> um they found a full handprint for jock and a palm print of dunning and then there were some other prints spattered around uh lots of blood obviously in and around the bathroom that was quite bloodied lots of bed sheets heavily stained uh the did he uh obviously with the autopsy they found out that um Vic had drank the equivalent of about five and a half pints of beer or what they reckon is just over a bottle of Beaujolais and there were two empty glasses of wine on the table. 
which uh, had the fingerprints of Jock and Vic on them. Uh, la, 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 la. What else we got? What else we got? Um, just having a trawl through. I put loads of notes here, but I didn't want to. Oh, yeah. Okay. After the committal hearing, uh, an inmate at Fairfield Hospital, Stopfield in Hertfordshire, asked to pass on important information relating to the murder of Vic. Uh, uh, his name was uh, Andrew Watson-Allen, who we mentioned. Uh, 36 years old, former sales manager. He occupied a bed in Brixton Prison Hospital, the same ward as Dunning and Simpson. So that's Willie and Jock. Uh, they told him uh, the part they had played in the murder and of the defence that they planned to put forward at their acquittal. Uh, so DS Peel came in, uh, took the statement from them. Uh, it was brought to the Department of uh, Public Prosecutions. Uh, the medical officer assessed uh, Andrew Keir Watson, Andrew Watson Allen, uh, as fit to give evidence. Because obviously, even though he'd been sectioned four times, he was actually only in there for, for a nervous disorder. It wasn't it wasn't like he was absolutely bloody barking. Uh, but uh, Dr. Mallet, psychiatrist at Fairfield Hospital, had already stated uh, this. Uh, they found details earlier on that the, uh, the, the defence that... Uh, oh... Andrew Watson was suffering from delusions uh, and therefore they, uh, because he'd been sectioned four times and they also said that he'd been diagnosed with a, a psychopathic personality disorder, sounds worse than it is, uh, therefore his evidence w wasn't fit to f put forwards. Even though when you listen to kind of that story, his evidence, I haven't put all of it in there, but when you listen to his piece of evidence about the fact that it was, you know, maybe a bit of a, a homosexual group session that went on which led to a, an accidental death which let, then led to a robbery instead of it being a robbery which accidentally which led to a kind of a murder it kind of makes more sense if that's really what's going on so but obviously it's hard to pin down really what the uh what the truth is on this one Oh, what else do we have? Uh, Monday the 12th of April 1965, the Court of Criminal Appeal, uh, their, their appeal approved. As mentioned, their sentences uh, were commuted to life in prison. They were originally charged with capital murder. Obviously, this was a murder charge because... Uh, sorry, this is a life sentence they were going to get because they'd stolen something in, the, in pursuant of... Sorry, it's murder... In furtherance of a theft, which is what you'd be executed for. If they would have just gone in and murdered him, it would be a life sentence. If they went in and murdered him and stole something, it's a death sentence. That was the bullshit law that we had around that time. That if you murdered someone, no, it's just a life sentence. If you murder someone and you happen to steal their wallet, it's a death sentence. It never made sense. But uh, So they were convicted 22nd of March 1965. Now, they were set to be executed on the 20th of April that year. Uh, but obviously, as mentioned, the, the last person had already been hung in the in England six months before. The, the government were already at the point of trying to get ready to abolish the death penalty anyway. So it never happened. Uh, they were sent to prison and they served between 11 months and 11 years and four months and 12 years and three months. So averaging around 12 months. Uh, what else we got <sighs> I think that's it I think that's all I've got oh I'm knackered really knackered 
I need my tea. Oh, I think I'm, I think I might not do some editing today. I think I might just, I might just veg out. Right, I'm going to answer these bloody questions. Oh, back it. Just got nothing left. Uh, right, question time. Uh, here we go. Okay, let's see how you did. Let's see how you did. There's some easy ones, but there's some hard ones as well. Okay, name the hotel that Vic's mum owned. I only mentioned this once, so it may have skipped you by. I know I mentioned it twice. It was the Glenbourne Hotel. In Glenbourne Hotel, it's still there today, and it's in Listunvana. Still there today, so you can go and have a look at it if you're in that area. Um, Question number two. Name the two pubs in the story. The two pubs in the story were the White Hart, which is the pub that they all originally went to, and the Mitre, which is immediately opposite uh, Carroll House. Uh, I'm I'm going to try and post some videos online. Oh, maybe I'll do that today. Maybe I'll go. I'll go and film them today. Oh, um, but you'll see how close Carroll House is to the Mitre, as opposed to the White Hart. It doesn't make sense that they go to the White Hart, not the Mitre. And the Mitre is quite a decent pub as well. Question number three: Where was Vic born? As mentioned, bonus point for attempting to pronounce this. I had to literally write this down phonetically. Unless I probably still got it wrong. Uh, he was born in Enestimon. 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 There you go. Threw in a really awful Irish accent there. Maybe I'll just redo it all with Enestimon. Enestimon. Um, question four. <laughs> I, I'm half Irish. I'm allowed to do that. Uh, <laughs> question four. What were the three drinks found in Vic's flat? Now, this was difficult. This is uh, this is harder than a question four. Uh, as mentioned, obviously, he had some Beaujolais in this, some red wine. When he first went in with... When Jock first went in to Vic's flat, they were drinking vermouth. But, you may have missed this one. What was the one thing that they stole from the flat? A bottle of gin. So it was Beaujolais, Vermouth and Gin. Easy question, I think. Uh, Question five. Where was Vic's wallet and checkbook hidden? The wallet was hidden in the kitchen cupboard. The checkbook was under the carpet. Question number six. Where did Jock, Willie and Lane get a taxi from following the murder? Murder. Uh, Answer. Marble Arch. Question number seven. Which prison hospital just mentioned just mentioned this one as well? Which prison hospital? I just mentioned this in all the things I've just been talking about. Oh dear. Question seven. Which prison hospital were Jock and Willie in? That was Brixton Prison Hospital. Question eight. What was Vic's final meal? Answer. It's a three-part answer. Irish stew, potatoes, and bread pudding. Obviously, this is from the the Camden section house, uh, police section house. So maybe Police Constable Arsenal Guinness eats there. Although I suspect that the Camden section house no longer exists. I know that I know the one in Soho, the Indrestra Place section house, no longer exists. Uh, I think most of the section houses have gone. You'll probably let me know, won't you? <laughs> oh, uh, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness. If you're free one evening, we'll do an e pint, an e pint of Guinness using Facebook Live. Let's do that. Uh, we'll get the get the other the other the other two boys involved as well. Um, question number nine: 
What was the name of the cafe and what was the food that they ate there? The cafe was the Saibon Cafe and they ate egg and chips. Ooh, egg and chips. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> very English cuisine. Uh, and question number 10. Uh, what was the name of the dry cleaning company that Jock briefly worked for? And the answer, the patent steam clean clean... The patent steam clean cleaning, <laughs> the patent steam clean cleaning company. See, that's why they went out of business because they got a bloody stupid name. Just call it, just call it cleaning company. Just call it patent steam. Just call it the dry cleaners. Yeah, as opposed to patent steam clean cleaning company. See, clean cleaning clean cleaning company. Imagine, imagine a scouser trying to say that. Patent Steam Clean Cleaning Company. That was my John Bishop impression, as you may remember from, from oh, what's it called? Mini Mile. They will be coming later in the year, but, uh, oh, good. That was that. That's me done. I hope you enjoyed that. Oh, that was good fun. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to maybe do some editing. I think I'm going to have a cycle this morning. I think I need a, yeah, cycle. Yeah that's good right good fun hope you're all well stay safe uh stay secure hope all your families are well uh eat cake eat tea don't stress about stuff there's nothing we can do about it just stay safe wash your hands uh keep your distance from people remember to be polite to everyone who's working and doing their job because you know the last thing they need is more dickheads shouting at them because someone can't get some smiley faced pizza for their ugly little sprogs Oh, I saw that the other day. Some some really annoying woman in the so- supermarket getting upset because her, her annoying little brats couldn't have... It was some kind of smiley-faced pizza. And it was like, Mrs. A, we're in a bit of a crisis. B, there's barely any food on the shelves. C, have you seen the size of your kids? No offence, but... <sighs> salad. <laughs> Vegetables. You know, not processed foods. They could... They, they need this... this tragedy that's going on now that hopefully they'll lose a bit of of weight and hopefully she won't be as hyper that she's mouthing off all the time anyway anyway that's why you need to be polite to everyone which is really nice uh i think it's quite nice people are actually um, i'm I'm looking at the queues outside supermarkets now like there's a, a queue to get into tesco's and everyone has to stand two meters apart and it's good it's like do you know they're only let, letting probably like 50, 100 people into the supermarket at any one time. So it's so it's very well spaced. Well done, Tesco's. People are waiting outside. Everyone's waiting in queues. No one's, no one's fussing. Everyone's just standing there and waiting and waiting for their turn. And that's the way it should be. Not dickheads shouting. If you're a dickhead and you go into a supermarket and you start shouting, I'm telling you off. This is me telling you off. I'm wagging my finger at you. I'm not happy. The rest of you, I'm very happy with. Right, okay. Enjoy, enjoy. I was going to say, enjoy the rest of your life. I'm not going anywhere. Enjoy the rest of the day, week, and I'll speak to you all soon. Coot says, Coot says goodbye. It's cake time. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.